You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Episode 106, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. And today's expert is Dr. Jeff Siegel, who is a neurosurgeon and the CEO of Medical Justice, which can best be described as a medical liability membership program to help physicians protect their practice, their professional reputation, and of course, their license when it comes to either credentialing through a hospital or potential sanctioning from the Board of Medicine in their state. We'll also have fun talking about some bizarre liability cases and frivolous lawsuits and ways of protecting physicians like those occurring after failed vasectomies. Dr. Siegel is joining me in a number of other podcast shows. His is the Medical Liability Minute, uh, but we're part of the Doctor Podcast Network, which will officially launch in January. We've had a soft launch, and you've heard me read a couple of ads earlier. But I would suggest if you haven't had an opportunity, go to doctorpodcastnetwork.com. You can check out the other shows there, and if you aren't getting quite enough medical podcasting. You can certainly go there and find a couple shows. And I plan to have a number of those physicians on to talk about their shows and their specialties. The hope, of course, with the Dr. Podcast Network is that we'll increase the, the breadth and reach of this show. That's obviously been accomplished mostly by you, the listener, as you share the show with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you've not yet subscribed to the show, I'd recommend you please press the subscribe button on the podcast player of choice that you use right now. Remember, it costs nothing. But if you feel like Hmm, this is a great show. I wonder how I can help the production and the promotion of the show. Well, all the money that's raised through the Patreon page at thepatreon.com slash theparadox will go towards the production and the promotion of the show. And there you can go and sign up for a monthly pledge. And depending on the giving amount, there are extra bonuses that you can receive. Finally, as always, you can go to theparadox.com slash 106. And there you can get the show notes, which have links to Dr. Siegel's podcast, his website, and a lot of the other information we have in the show will be linked in that show notes page, again, at theparadox.com slash 106. But without further ado, neurosurgeon Dr. Jeff Siegel, and I'm a doc, and why do I need a risk mitigation company? Enjoy. I'm here with my new friend, Dr. Jeff Siegel. Dr. Siegel is also has his JD. He's a neurosurgeon by training and is the CEO of Medical Justice and a partner at Bird Adato Health Firm. His company is, I guess, will focus on medical liability, and he has a podcast called the Medical Liability Minute Poet Podcast, and he's also a member of the Doctor Podcast Network, which is going to launch officially, I guess, what, January or so, but... Uh, when... Hope springs eternal. <laughs> Hope springs eternal, exactly. Uh, but Dr. Siegel has a lot of interesting things to say, and we haven't really talked about medical malpractice in this podcast since way back in episode eight, so it'll be on the show notes page, you can find that. Uh, where I talked to Dr. Stacia Dearman, who is the uh, ER physician, where we talked about suicide, depression, and malpractice, which all kind of unfortunately sort of uh, link together for physicians. Uh, that can be found on the show notes page at theparadox.com. But Dr. Siegel, thanks so much for joining the show. Great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Oh, my pleasure. Well, I wanted to start off by asking the kind of the obvious question. So you are a neurosurgeon by training. Uh, you went to yes. Baylor for medical school. You're based in North Carolina now. But you know, usually people say, well, they go to med school, they go to, they go to medicine, they do the residency. And for those who aren't familiar, we're talking about four years of undergraduate, be it bachelor's in something. So you're 26, then you are 22. Then you go to four years of medical school, you're 26. Then you do neurosurgery residency, which I'm guessing was five to six years when you were doing it. So you're done at uh, 30. One year internship, five of residency, one year fellowship. So seven, so 10 you're, years in practice. Right. So you're 33 when you're done and start practicing right out by your, yeah. on your own. And then you're in practice for 10 years. And so the person, most people would say, you only practice 10 years. 
why, why did you, what, what made you stop practicing or go to get your law degree? And you know, how does, because a lot of people say, oh, you just kind of gave up all those years, but I'm, you know, that's a, it's a sunk cost, right? But go ahead and tell us a, It is story. a common question. It's also a question my mother asked me, go, how can you do that? <laughs> my son, how, my neurosurgeon, how can you do that? Anyway, um, I actually loved the practice of neurosurgery. Let me, let me guide you through my trajectory. So I um, was delighted practicing. I was practicing in a small town in the Midwest. And when my son was three, he was diagnosed with pretty severe autism and epilepsy. Um, could, we didn't think, uh, my wife and I didn't think we could care for him properly in a small town in the Midwest. So we moved to North Carolina to get services for him. My plan at the time was to take a year off, kind of focus on him, focus on the family, then go back to doing precisely what I knew how to do, which is practice neurosurgery. In that one year window, after we were trying to get, after we got everyone settled, I was exposed to a collection of pharmaceutical compounds at University of North Carolina and Purdue. And I was convinced at the time they might be helpful to treating autism as well as a host of other central nervous system disorders. Um, anyway, I said, well, what would it take to kind of commercialize these or move them along. They said, well, you got to raise money, you got to license the compounds, et cetera. So naively, uh, we did that. I started a biotechnology company with the two other scientific founders in Chapel Hill, and we did that for approximately four to five years. So um, how far did we take it? We moved them, we moved these compounds from preclinical to um, phase two, which is quite far along in a shoestring budget, then ultimately sold the company to a medical device company. These compounds were not orally available, so marrying them with a, with a device to kind of get into the body seemed like a, uh, a natural step. Um, but I had been out for five years, and while I'm arrogant enough to believe I could go back and actually <laughs> treat patients, um, I'm probably, I probably still feel that way, and I've been out of it for, for much longer. I didn't think a rational patient would consent to go under the knife and allow me to touch them. So uh, my choices were either go back and get people comfortable doing some type of a mini residency, which there was no way I was going to do, mm -hmm. or do what I like doing, which is being a healthcare entrepreneur. And that was the beginning of medical justice. And we'll get into that in just a few minutes. But that was, that was my trajectory. How did I gracefully glide out of neurosurgery? It was a family issue that was quite motivating to me. I never looked back in the rearview mirror. I can't say I do miss the practice of neurosurgery, but it could be because my memory's fading. I only remember the good times. I remember, I, I forget all the paper cuts along the way. <laughs> Yeah, the call, right? The late nights, the middle of the night. Yeah, now it's coming back. Oh my God, post-traumatic stress disorder. Right. Yes. Uh, and I think, you know, I'm guessing too, that it was probably a blessing in many ways just to be able to spend a little more time with your family. Because I mean, it, I, medical specialties, they, they vary in sort of their, their toll on your family and your time. But I mean, your surgery is classically one of the ones that's going to really pull you away, especially if you're in a small town. I mean, your call is probably frequent, right? I mean, you're on every second, every third night or and day. And I, I mean, I don't know how busy your calls were, but I imagine th that keeps you away from especially helping care for your son and the, your family. Yeah, certainly when I practiced in the Midwest, it was, we had a total of three neurosurgeons. It was my partner, I, and then there was another neurosurgeon. And I don't even, I can't even recall if he took call. So it was essentially the two of us. It was every other night and we, we would split weekends. So it was every other weekend for us. Um, but the draw area was a quarter of a million people, and <clears throat> we were right off of a major interstate highway, and we saw more than our fair share of trauma. Now, the good news for us was if we got slammed, we could always uh, ship out to Indianapolis, and they had a gigantic neurosurgical practice, and we had a wonderful relationship. I wasn't part of that group as a satellite office, but we had an excellent interpersonal relationship, and they were only too delighted to help us out. Um, but it was busy, man. We we were busy, busy, busy. Yeah. Well, and that's something that is seems fine when you're 35, 36, right? And then you start getting a little further on, and you get other things going on in life. And and it sounds like, uh, at least from um, an intellectual standpoint, that you were, as although you pro enjoyed the medicine, it was the I don't know, creating business, the innovation, sort of that definitely drew you to other things too, right? I mean, that's when you mentioned the entrepreneurial thing. That's 
clearly something that's been in your background. I mean, to not many people would say, hey, I'm going to start a biotech firm and start trying to develop compounding medications. Well, I did dabble. So I dabbled while I was still in the clinical practice of medicine. In particular, um, even though we only had a two-person group, one of the things that I was charged with doing was designing the call schedule. I just remember, we're talking about two people, and we each have our own request for holidays, weekends, et cetera. Right. How, how hard could that be? Um, but it, it turns out that if you're looking for it to be exactly equal, it's almost a mathematically intractable problem. And, and meaning that it, it's po- you can get close. Um, you can get really close. But if you're trying to be anal retentive about it, as most surgeons or most doctors would be, you'll realize it's a fool's game. But I ended up um, working with a mathematician, a computer program to design a call schedule. And of course, we got mission creep and, you know, needed all these bells and whistles. But it was kind of interesting just to see how a how a um, you could build something out of nothing. Now, let me let me describe the other system that, um, again, caught my fancy. So our our um, answering service was just horrible. It was a collection of humans that didn't seem to understand what is an emergent, an urgent, or a routine problem? But here's what happened. Um, this is when we, do you still use beepers? I don't even know if you still use beepers We out have there. pretty much, they exist, but hardly anyone uses them now. It's mainly cell phones, yeah. Okay, so we had alphanumeric beepers at the time, and they were a scourge, but they were part of our lives. <laughs> so anyway, um, this is one of these days. I'm on call, and it's a beautiful summer day, and I'm going to go swim outdoors in a lap pool, there's a lifeguard there. And I call my answering service. I said, look, I'm available. I'm going to give my beeper to the lifeguard. If there's an emergent or even urgent call, just um, go ahead and um, call me and the lifeguard will tap me on the shoulder and I'll get out. And got it. So I, on my third lap and get a tap on my shoulder once I hit the wall and it's the lifeguard. So he says your beeper went off. He didn't know what to do with yeah, it. Yeah. So I, I call in and I finally figure out what it was. It was a laxative order. Okay. <laughs> and this is in the middle of the day. So I, I'm steamed at that point. I'm probably doing my personal best in terms of uh, laps at that point. Just irritated at the answering service. And then um, another five minutes later, got another tap on my shoulder. Again, it's the same thing. Beeper went off. And I can't recall what it was, but it was similar to the laxative order. So I said, I've got to extricate this answering service from a lot. It can't be worse than just having an automated system. Right. Found the guy out in uh, Silicon Valley. This this was a a long time ago. And the two of us just started putting together what algorithms might look like if a patient would call the office. And all I really asked the patient, one of three things, if this is urgent, I'm sorry, if this is emergent, press one. If this can wait 30 minutes, press two. If it can wait till tomorrow, press three. That was it. And then my big fear at the time was that everybody would triage right. into one. Right everything's, now. Everything's an emergency. But here's what I learned. Patients are great at triaging. And it, it was so rare that anybody pressed one, but it was the real deal. It was almost like giving out a patient your cell phone number. People think, oh, I would never do that. But most the vast majority of times they triage properly. Why? They're going to see you again. And if they abuse that, you know, bad things happen to them. So it allowed me to put my faith in patients. It also was um, an interesting foray into trying to create a business. I did learn at the time there is a difference between a product and a business. Um, They aren't necessarily the same. The, The solution to call schedules, the solution for the um, answering service. Those turned out to be products I was never able to commercialize, but I did get the taste, got the bug. Yeah. And then, so how did you end up in medical school? I mean, it's, or I'm sorry, law school. You must've been after, well, after you were in Chapel Hill and after your biotech company? Way after the fact. So once, once we got an exit with the uh, biotech company, I try, was trying to figure out what to do next. And at the time, professional liability was a real hot button issue across mm-hmm. the country. I mean, doctors were getting sued left and right. Professional liability insurance wasn't just unaffordable, it was unavailable. And there were parts of the country where doctors were going bare, particularly Broward, uh, Broward, uh, Broward and Dade County in Southern Florida. You'd have people that just 
I said, I'm not going to pay 200K a year for $250,000 worth of coverage. Right, right. Sense. And you're right, it makes no sense. But the insurance carriers would say, whoa, we'll cover you for up to three cases in a year. So it's really $750,000 in coverage. <laughs> Didn't seem like a great deal of time. So um, I had been sued one time for what I perceived to be a frivolous reason. The single expert had actually been ex- uh, who testified against me had actually been expelled from our professional society for delivering frivolous testimony. Yet there he was, you know, very charismatic individual, able to communicate well um, with a jury, um, spouting nonsense. He'd never seen or done the case at issue. Now, this case was dropped about two weeks before trial, but I never felt as if I won anything. I only felt as if I lost less. So I thought, what now? This seems crazy. So we put together medical justice as a way to um, perform the services and pay the bills to file counterclaims and countersuits against those who come after physicians for frivolous litigation. Not any litigation because, you know, mea culpa, there are doctors who have done wrong. I think the common theme, though, is that for most doctors who truly have made a mistake, and a mistake for most doctors is a snapshot, it's not a movie, it's just a, a right. bad day, it's it's not a recurrent theme. Um, but anyway, um, my thinking was there's got to be a better way, and that was the beginning of medical justice. Now, I got a law degree years later um, after starting medical justice, and I only took the bar years after that. So I've done this whole thing backwards. Yeah, it's an unplanned uh, course through life, right? Uh, I feel like I have the same thing, right? I ended up in anesthesia, but it was only sort of by accident. It just seemed like it was fun. <laughs> and so that's what I t- and uh, had I had any planning, I may not have done it, but uh, actually it's worked out okay for me. It, it, it is kind of an interesting um, story because people, uh, you know, people just assume that physicians intend to be doctors you know, from the moment they exit the uterus. And for me in college, I was a liberal arts major and a math minor. Um, and I, it turns out I had taken the uh, requirements to get into medical school and I had certainly thought about it. But uh, until I took some summer programs where I was in an operating room and thought, oh, this is, this is great, I really love this. I'm not entirely sure that that would have been my trajectory. Yeah. I mean, I, I went to, to school, I was an engineer and I only, my junior year did I think, eh, you know what, this is really probably not what I want to do. I don't feel like an engineer. Maybe I'll try med school. Not recognizing that, well, I have to do prerequisites. Uh, there's this thing called the MCAT. You can actually study for it, which I never knew. I just took it. So, um, Oh yeah. You should have studied for it. You would have found it to be a lot easier. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I don't, um, and you know, at the time there was, you know, it's, I don't feel like I'm that old, but it's like, there wasn't that much, uh, available online, right? It wasn't like, like now you can, there's a lot more information that's available readily and you can sort of anticipate right. stuff. And the time it was, you just kind of going through blind and, and counselors at universities were about as useful as they are at high schools, which is not very, and, uh, they couldn't provide any really any guidance outside of, you know, are you sure you want to be taking so many classes? I'm like, yeah. So, <laughs> um, and so then you form medical justice and that can be found and this will also be linked to the show notes at the paradox.com. So medicaljustice.com, but explain, I guess, what medical justice is because, you know, when a physician is traditionally thinks of malpractice, they think of an insurance company and they just buy insurance coverage. And then, um, for us here in West Michigan, we have a unique situation where, we, but we have a low, lower liability than the rest of the state. We sort of have pooled our, in the West side, which tends not to be as litigious as other parts of the state or even the region. Um, but what exactly uh, is makes your company or is unique from like a traditional carrier of uh, malpractice insurance? It's a great question. So the traditional carrier plays defense. If you are, <clears throat> if you are sued, the carrier will provide a, an attorney and they'll pay for a settlement or judgment. Their role is rather limited. Um, our company plays offense. Our goal is to, um, to deliver a collection of offensive remedies, primarily before a case gets started to try and de-escalate or even prevent the conflict and after a case is over. So we don't play in the same space as a professional liability company, even though we complement what they do. So let me give an example. We would get involved with risk management upfront before there's a problem. And we're often the first call a doctor will make when 
they perceive there's a problem or a conflict with a patient. And what's interesting is that conflicts left unresolved ultimately or may find their way to an attorney, but there is certainly a period of time before a patient finds an attorney um, and they don't really know what's going on. We hold the doctor's hand during this particular process and sometimes the problems are quite serious. So for example, um, an interesting call we got was from a doctor who performed a cosmetic uh, surgery on a patient and before the patient even woken up, he calls me. Why? He had done the wrong procedure. Um, he had intended to do a liposuction, ended up doing a tummy tuck or abdominoplasty, which is a much bigger procedure. Yeah. Wow. And so the first comment was, but she looks great. And I said, well, <laughs> that's helpful, but uh, you still did the wrong procedure. He says, I know, I don't know how to manage this. And ultimately, we did help him think through the options. And, and he also called his carrier at the time just to notify them. So some of the things would be to, you know, be transparent with the patient, explain to the patient initially when she woke up what happened um, and why the intended procedure was not performed. Then say, we will do a deep dive to figure out how this happened. How did this happen to you? Even though it won't benefit this particular patient, it likely will benefit someone down the road and patients wanna know that whatever happened to them did not happen in vain. Number three, um, give her money back, just take it off the table. And this is a cash pay patient and we didn't want that uh, confusing the issue. It wasn't gonna make or break the doctor and he could do that with, uh, without creating a problem. And then number four was to try and identify what her near-term challenges will be. She intended to be back at work in about three days. She was gonna be off for at least two weeks and she had a kid at home, the kid had to get to school, they need to get food. So he just handled that. He says, I will take care of that for you. He said it was an, I like this euphemism, an uncomfortable conversation. <laughs> um, so it was, she was not happy initially, but when she came back to have her staples removed, she started to warm up. And I can tell you, I, I'm just using his words. He said, six months later, she became his greatest referral source to his practice. His yeah. greatest referral source to his practice. And when you think about it, he made a mistake, and yet this woman is singing, you know, praises from the uh, from the rooftop about how he did it. Why? It's how he handled it. He treated her with respect as a human being. Tried to anticipate her problems, and he was able to deliver it uh, with um, with um, with a plum. I think he did a great job. Yeah, I think, and you know, when you listen to stories of people who get sued, it, it is all, as you mentioned, it seems to be uh, more a problem of lack of communication, a cover-up, or there's some sort of um, deception involved. And then if you go and proactively attack the problem, it, the outcomes are usually better, at least. Uh, and you can definitely see how, in this case, it would be it would be advantageous to him, especially if he did a good job. I mean, it, someone probably would come back yes. and they would, yeah, I mean... It, treating people with respect and dignity and the fact, like you said, I think it's important for people to recognize that what happened to them with something good comes of it, a new process changes, or there's some sort of, um, you know, if there wasn't significant harm that perhaps there's some, something would be helpful to other people. Right. And that's makes them feel better. So let me follow up on that thread with communication where the outcome was not good, where the patient died. And um, I recall a patient who had a complex intracranial procedure. And for whatever reason, the patient ended up getting brain swelling and passed away. I mean, it was a horrific outcome. And I'll, I will tell you, it was equally horrific to the surgeon. I mean, he, sure. it was unusual. It was an unusual event. Um, I can't remember precisely the details, but he was freaking out that first of all, a patient had died and he wasn't quite sure, even though he was no stranger to having a conversation with families about death, he was um, concerned with how this might turn out from a professional liability standpoint, but the principles are unchanged. It's, you know, say you're sorry for their loss. You're not saying you, you know, you were the negligent cause of their loss. You're just a human being. They're saying you're a human. I'm a human. I understand your pain and it doesn't, I know this hurts and I know it hurts a lot. First step. Number two would be to try and identify and be transparent. If, if you don't, if you're not available to the patients and they try calling and capturing information and they don't get their calls answered, nature abhors an information vacuum. <laughs> they will ultimately get it filled. It's usually with an attorney. And then instead of having 
two sets of frontal lobes, you're going to have four sets of frontal lobes to have to manage. So I said, give her your cell phone number, communicate. You will communicate to any relative that wants to have a dialogue. And he mastered it um, perfectly. He really did a nice job. I believe he even went to the patient's funeral. I mean, sometimes people think that's a crazy thing to do. I think in this particular case, it, it bonded the family to him. And I don't think any of this was inauthentic. I don't think any of it was insincere. I think the doctor was really grieving at the same time. Maybe grieving is not the proper word, but I know he took it very personally and wanted to demonstrate his solidarity with the family. There was never a lawyer involved in this at all. And um, I think he was able to sidestep a problem. Now, would this have turned into litigation? I don't know. I think that, you know, he, he clearly could have defended the case, but if you're already talking about having to defend a case, you've already lost. Because as I described in my personal experience, I never felt as if I won anything. I just felt as if I lost less. And if you've never been in litigation, um, it's quite a shock. It's not the comfortable landscape that we're used to being in. I'm, I was used to being in the operating room. I wasn't used to being, you know, um, being deposed and being asked questions. And then when you look at the summons, the summons describes you as Hannibal Lecter, yeah. <laughs> someone who is a horrible human being that never should have gotten um, a license. And the mere fact that the Board of Medicine gave you a license just demonstrates, you know, how willful and wantonly um, the, the system, um, you know, provides inept people with the ability to butcher <laughs> patients. I'm, I was looking at the summons. I go, who is this butcher? I don't recognize him at all. This is insane. Um, but my point is, it is very stressful. It is time consuming because if you want to help your attorney do a good job and look, a great defense attorney is worth his or her weight in gold, but they don't spend 10 years learning the anatomy, physiology, and techniques of what it means to be in anesthesia, to be in the operating room, et cetera. So you have to educate them. And most of them are pretty good studies, but the way they become educated is you educate them. And if, if you think they're just going to get the job done and talk to experts, that's mistake 101. You don't want to leave that to chance. You want to be an active participant. And by the way, um, for those who are listening to this, we do have a series of very brief documents on how to do a great deposition. And if you've never been deposed before and you're about to be deposed, you need to read this. You need to internalize. You need to memorize. You need to live it. And it was written by uh, a defense attorney. And I, when I saw it, I thought, God, I've never seen it put so well. I said, can I use this? He says, please spread it, <laughs> spread it to the world, you know, because it makes his, uh, his life a lot easier. Yeah. So lots, lots to chew on there. Well, yeah. And, and when I, even when I met, uh, interviewed Dr. Dearman, the whole isolation, the, the um, the stress that comes with these practice these lawsuits, it's not only is it common, but it's it's a real a personal affront. Like you said, it's someone you don't recognize in the in the paperwork, and you're oftentimes really uh, unable to talk about it much with your partners. One for shame because you don't want other people to know that you're being sued because you maybe there was a mistake you made or you know or or maybe there wasn't, but uh, you feel like you can't talk about it with other people. You also recognize that if other people hear your story. That can, if they are then asked later, do you know some you know lawsuit or litigation mm -hmm. happened to someone in a credentialing process that they have to say yes I do, and that can cause problems later on. And so there's uh, the the system is actually designed to to isolate you, whether it's intentional or not. I mean that's sort of the reality of of how it works for physicians. And so that isolation can really cause the problems with the stress, uh, suicide, all those sorts of things that go along with you know burning out and just the physicians having uh, struggling. Uh, what it what kind of things do you do you recommend then to try and help with that? I mean, is that, is, is that just having someone who's in your corner? You've hit the nail on the head. So first, well, first, we don't get any training or experience with this in medical school or residency. I mean, when you get out into the real world, I mean, it's, it's hard enough learning how to master your craft in residency. I mean, it's already two full-time jobs, much less learning about the law, um, 
the uh, regulatory aspects of medicine, how to run a business. I mean, we don't learn any of that. Maybe they do now, but certainly I had no. <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, I think if, if you get it, you probably get an hour or two. It's like nutrition. I mean, nobody <laughs> yeah. talks about it. And it's, it's the type of thing you do all day. You know, it's eating and what you put into your bodies. It's kind of important, but nobody really spends any time thinking about it. Um, but the first thing is to remember you are not alone. I mean, I can just look at the math. If you are a neurosurgeon, well, let me back up. You don't have to be a neurosurgeon. If you're any surgeon, any surgeon, the likelihood of you going to age 65 and never being sued is less than 1%. Let that sink in for a second. It's a very sobering statistic. The likelihood of you as a surgeon going to age 65 and never being sued is less than 1%. And even for the lower risk specialties, there's still a significant likelihood of being sued at least one time. Now, the good news is you're mostly going to prevail. The truth is, is that many of these cases are either dismissed or the doctor wins. I mean, it's not extremely common to have there being settlements and judgments and very few cases go to trial. But to your point, what is it that makes professional liability different than other mistakes that happen in our lives? As an example, if I'm in an auto accident, I actually don't think about it. I just turn it over to my um, auto insurance company and just let them deal with it. Um, yeah. I haven't had it happen much, but it's definitely happened. And I just picked up the phone. I called them and I said, this, this is the uh, name, contact information of the car that I hit. Here's a picture of it. Have a nice day. And then they'll send me a note back six months later. Here's how much we spent on your uh, um, on your behalf, fixing the problem you created and um, you're canceled. No, they don't say that. <laughs> you're terminated. No, they just solve the problem. But the truth is, I don't think myself the worst driver having been involved in a single auto accident. Right. But, but healthcare is different. We take it very personally. It is our identity. It is who we are. It's what we do. Nobody's going to beat us up harder than we beat ourselves up. But the, this is some of the fallout you get with professional liability. To your point, you're not supposed to talk about it. How can you not talk about it? You've got something boiling up inside of you. You're not going to tell you, talk to your spouse. You're not going to talk to your colleagues. How can you not talk to anyone? It's difficult to let, you know, let this fester inside. And if, if you do let it fester inside, it's going to find some type of egress. And that egress is going to be in stress, lost sleep, etc. cetera. Uh, number two is that um, these... Um, what um, it, you're going to spend a lot of time defending this. You're going to be in depositions. You're, if you go to trial, you're looking at two to three weeks frequently. And that's time that you're not earning a living. And you, if you lose, it may very well be a very public loss that goes into the newspaper. If there's a settlement or judgment uh, that gets paid, it goes into the National Practitioner Data Bank. And it doesn't matter what the amount does, what, what the amount is. It doesn't matter if it's $1 or $5 million dollars you become a line item in the data bank. Sometimes the Board of Medicine will get involved um, and then it's not just a matter of money that gets paid out, it's the ticket to your livelihood, namely your license, you have to explain it away. If you have a license in more than one state, you've got to explain it in every state. Every time you re-credential, yeah. either for insurance companies or um, licensing or hospital privileges, you got to explain it away. What's my point with all of this? My point is, is that it's a lot more serious than a car accident and turning it over to your insurance company. Uh, so I would argue that professional liability is different. And it is weird because I speak to plaintiff attorneys frequently and they go, what's the big deal, man? You're insured. You got, you know, you got money um, and it's not going to come out of your pocket. And um, they just don't get it. The yeah. good ones get it. I think the good plaintiff attorneys do understand this and um, are gentler when they try to extract the same amount of cash from the doctor. They don't go out on the attack, which tends to create a natural defensive posture. Um, but by and large, a lot of the people who dabble in this space just do not understand the makeup of a doctor and why this is not just about money. Yeah. Why? Well, and, you know, you look at other professions and I mean, their mistakes are made all the time everywhere, right? I mean, I think we had, uh, you could you can look at professional athletes. That's a high profile. You know, you drop a touchdown pass and your team loses. I mean, that's right. obviously like a lot of stress there and that, and that's hard, but people, you know, I go through the drive through and they have my order wrong or something like that's a mistake too. And, and, but people don't have, um, 
people who work in that job, they may actually be really bothered by that. But there's not at least the public acknowledgement and certainly the fact that you, you'll never be able to work in fast food again or something like that, right? I mean, but I mean, that, you, you know, could only dream. You can only dream you won't have to work in right. fast food again. It's your ticket out. I, I've done that a long time ago, but it's been a while. Um, so your company is different. And when it, with medical justice, is it, I guess, why don't you explain how it works? Like, do you, uh, is it a membership program? Do you, do you get involved like when there's something happens or, or do you try and get there? you know, after the fact. You want to be involved before. It's a membership program, subscription-based. And we do make ourselves available if a doctor is already in the middle of a lawsuit. We describe it as being able to buy fire insurance while your house is burning down, (laughs) but it costs a lot more. So we tell people, jump in while it's cheap. It's like buying um, long-term care insurance when you're young. Who thinks about it? Nobody thinks about it. But when you finally think about it, you know, in your 60s and 70s, you can still buy it. It's just the price for entry is quite high. So, yes, it is a subscription agreement. It doesn't cost uh, very much when there's not a problem. But if and when there is a problem and then you decide to jump in, the price for delay can be quite steep. Well, and just looking through the services, I mean, one of the obvious things that is now more prevalent, right? I mean, is you have online and web-based reviews of of your how well you are or how good you are as a doctor, right? For anesthesia, we don't deal with that very much because we don't have actually a patient base. You know, a, you know, we don't, people don't usually seek us out. Like, you know, I want this specific anesthesiologist. They just kind of go to some hospital or surgeon. Uh, but for obviously for if you're a primary care or if you're a specialist of some sort and you get bad reviews on, I don't know, health grades and I don't know what all the different sites are. Whenever I try and Google a physician to find out where they are, it's like three Google pages of just various rating companies. Right. And then before you can actually find an address, it's kind of strange. And then you go there and there's like only two reviews. So anyway, that's a totally different thing. So here's what's fascinating about that. Um, oh, 12 years ago, maybe a bit longer, we had a client who was being sued for professional negligence. The same time and in parallel, he was getting slammed on the internet. So someone had purchased a domain name and had made it her life's effort to just get him out of business. Her job was her job. Number one was not to just win the professional liability suit. It was to make sure that he was not able to earn a living. And now he was comfortable defending the lawsuits. Okay. Cause he thought he had yeah. all of his ducks in a row. He did not anticipate the damage that could be caused in the online world. This is before people were even looking at reviews or creating reviews for doctors. And so he asked what can be done. And we thought, well, maybe there's a legal solution, but with the benefit of hindsight, and we learned this a long time ago, it, you can't control the internet through the law. It's just a fool's game. Right. Um, at the time, my thinking was, who would pick a doctor based on reviews? Who would do that? And my thinking was, the, the things people are writing about are not the things that matter. So for me, in order would be, you know, at least the two buckets would be, safety and outcomes. In other words, don't kill me and make me better. Those would be the two most important things. And then all the other stuff. And I thought people were writing about the other stuff, namely bedside manner, communication, parking, money, the other stuff. Nice to have, not must have if you're dead. So I wanted to prove that what people were writing about didn't matter. So I got a list of the best and worst surgeons for three different procedures from a large insurance company for safety and outcomes. And I was blinded as to which surgeons were in which bucket. Then I had some interns go to the internet and just see what people were saying about them. Mm -hmm. I fully assumed that there would be no correlation whatsoever between the quality of a doctor and their online reputation. Well, we unblinded the study. Lo and behold, I'm wrong. <laughs> it turns out <laughs> there was a strong correlation. And um, again, it was just for three procedures, but it, you know, the, the correlation was a lot stronger than I thought, meaning that what people were writing about did correlate with the safety and clinical outcomes of a particular doctor. So I, my thinking was, well, if, if that's true, and can be extended, why be defined by two noisy people in the megaphone? Sure. It should be defined by the vast majority of your patients. But we learned, as most people know, people are lazy and um, <laughs> they're busy. They're like you and me. Um, if you ask a happy patient, 
will you please write a review on me? Of course, they shake their head up and down. Yes, doctor, anything I can do to help out. They go home, they get distracted, they've moved on. Why? They're like you and me. They're busy yeah. and they get bombarded by the stuff. But the angry patient will find the time to do that. So we flipped this and said, well, what if we make it easy for them to do that in your practice at the point of service before they've left, when they're shaking their head up and down? Yes, doctor, I'd be happy to help. Well, here's an iPad. Let's get at it. So we made it simple to do that. We And in fact, what we learned is don't even ask for a review. Just embed into your workflow. You're asking for feedback. Because if you ask for a review, it's very presumptuous. If you ask for feedback, most people are willing to help out if they're, if they're um, you know, focused. They've already focused on choosing you as a doctor. They've already had the procedure. And if things have gone as intended, they're ready, willing, and able to help. So what did we learn? We learned that almost everybody says yes. And we were able to populate the dominant review sites with feedback from doctors. Now, we publish everything. We don't just filter the good stuff and, and post it up. But by and large, if you're a high-performing practice and you're doing a reasonably good job, the vast majority of the reviews will be positive. And, and candidly, having an occasional negative is better than having 100% positive reviews. Sure. Why is that? It looks authentic and credible. If all you have are 800 five-star reviews, not a single negative, the average um, person looking at that will conclude that doesn't comport with with my experience in the real world. Even the Rich Carlton can't make everybody happy all the time. I remember seeing a review in the Montreal Rich Carlton where mostly stellar reviews, but not everyone. One, I guess, what do you call them there? Not a client. What do you call a person that stays at a hotel? Customer? A customer. There you go. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you for filling in my temporary aphasia. <laughs> so the, the customer was incensed because she didn't quite see the chocolate that had been placed uh, on the pillow before she <laughs> went to sleep. And so the warmth of her face melted it when she woke up. She just assumed incorrectly that somehow she defecated all over herself and it was just a chocolate, you know. And um, so she was irritated with Ritz Carlton and spent a page describing her disgust with that. And well, the thing that's different is that the Ritz Carlton is not beholden to HIPAA. So they just jumped right back in and described how everybody loves the chocolates there. And we're sorry this didn't work out for you. And, you know, well, Apparently, the Ritz Carlton makes notes on their customers. So if they come back, they know what to do and, more importantly, what not to do. And I guess it's pretty clear what they won't do in this particular <laughs> She tastes so, delicious, yes. though, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the other thing we do is help people manage conflict and negative reviews. So negative reviews are part and parcel of the practice of medicine. And I think what the public wants to see is how do you manage a problem? I mean, problems are inevitable, but problems can be solved. And they want to see how you can solve them. You just need to solve it uh, if you're going to do it in public in a HIPAA compliant. So, you know, we got involved with the online world. Um, I think it was a natural segue from our conflict resolution tools that we had put together. But what we learned, I guess, to my surprise, is that a lot of people do use online reviews to select a doctor. And that for those who hit this out of the park, they're making money hand over fist, which which surprised me because I'm not sure that I would select a doctor that way. But um, as you start looking at younger and younger demographics, digital natives who have grown up with online reviews, they they very much depend upon this. And many practices do live and breathe based on reviews. And some practices are internet only practices where <clears throat> they see people not just from their region but from other parts of the country and even internationally, and they live, breathe, and die based on the internet. Yeah, sure. And, and I imagine in today's uh, healthcare world, it's it's more complicated when you have uh, large health systems, right? And so you're referring within the health system itself. And so there's probably a little bit less trust from patients uh, for their their primary care provider who's you know referring referring them in that they're just getting referred within the network and maybe this is not the best person. And so they may look for outside sources as well. Uh, to try and get a better feel for who's who's good or not, and and you probably don't have the same relationship with your with your primary care provider either that you had, you know, twenty five thirty years ago, where the, you just saw the same person all the time, and now there's you know millions of people who are seeing you, most of them not even physicians. Well, it's interesting you bring that up. So 
part of the changing dynamic in healthcare, certainly from the business model, is that many primary care practices have folded into healthcare systems. And the reason they were purchased was they wanted to purchase the patients. Right. Yeah. yeah. And the, yeah, so they're purchasing the patients, so to speak. And um, this has freaked out some of the multi specialty groups. For example, 25 to 50 man orthopedic groups, because previously they would very much depend upon primary care to refer to their group. But what the healthcare systems have done is that, well, they've said we can buy the primary care doctors, but not sure we can afford a 25 man or 50 man orthopedic group to fold into the healthcare system too pricey. So they'll end up um, buying or uh, actually the better word is hiring. They'll hire a uh, fresh graduate, maybe two fresh graduates who don't have a lot of real world experience. And then they'll ask the primary care doctor, just refer internally. Now, how do you combat that? How do you keep that 25 person orthopedic group from freaking out? Because their referral source is now potentially drying up. You basically use the internet to do it because the patients will ask, the patients will ask to be triaged to those that have a robust online presence with great deal of information and that's where they truly can compete if the 25 person group has and each doctor having been out in the real world for a long time has a large number of positive reviews and that there's a lot of substantive information in there to help the patient make a decision uh you can easily compete it's, it's a piece of cake because what's going to happen is the patient will come in with four pages of internet uh printouts you know of the doctors they want to see and the primary care doctor will initially say, well, look, I'm going to refer you internally to this person who's, you know, he's great, just has learned the, great, the, the newest techniques, yeah, yeah. you know, as a fresh graduate, et cetera, et cetera. And then the patient says, well, I've done my homework and I don't even see that they have a web page, but here I have this. So here's what that doctor can do. He could spend 15 minutes with the patient debating, trying to justify that decision, or he could say, uh, I can't get my 15 minute back. I'll do whatever you want. Yeah, right. yeah, they don't Next care. slide, please. So yeah. um, again, it goes back to human nature being what it is. So the internet can make it somewhat easier to manage some of the new challenges related to um, evolving referral patterns. Yeah. So just to be clear to uh, the audience members that I'm actually totally comfortable with my perfect 5.0 rating on Apple Podcasts. And so you don't don't feel obliged to you know rate four or three just to make it seem more realistic. I'm, t- I'm totally. Yeah. Podcast. By the way, I want to tell the whole world podcasts are entirely different. OK. Podcaster is not healthcare. OK. So, yes, we want to maintain the status quo right here. It took extraordinary effort to get it to five. Do not screw with it. Yeah, please. It, if you want to do some more fives, I'm totally fine with it. Actually, leave a written review, which many of you, you are have. so flexible. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I want to just briefly get to you know you have a very interesting podcast. You don't you haven't published a lot. I know now that you're going to be part of the Doctor Podcast Network, you're going to be publishing. I imagine much more frequently. Um, but some super interesting, I know everybody here has, you know, they think they've got all the, the medical podcasts they've got with the paradox, but I would say, uh, there's some things, even if you aren't in medicine, which I know a lot of you aren't, I mean, I'm just looking at a couple of these titles, a stray needle into an eye during elective surgery. What happens? You know, who's to blame? Is it the scrub tech? Is it the surgeon? Uh, you Who have knew? somebody gets pesticide okay. put in, poured into their wound in the emergency room because it happens to be sitting at the, uh, at the, within the treatment room. Uh, what's another one? Uh, someone who start sleeping with their patient while treating the the husband as well. And so I, you know, those are super interesting. Why, why don't you just pick one of those and kind of just briefly tell a little bit of the story uh, to kind of wet our appetite for the medical liability minute podcast. Let's see. So um, let me give one story because this is a real world and it actually happened more than once. And I thought the first time I heard this, it can't be, <laughs> but it turned out. So this was what I consider to be a frivolous lawsuit. So a doctor does a vasectomy and postoperatively measures the sperm count, and it's, as you expect, zero. Then a year later, the patient comes back in and says that he's planning on suing the doctor. Why? His wife got pregnant, okay? (laughs) And he was living in a small town, okay? Mm -hmm. And um, the implication was that the doctor didn't do his job right. Now, it turns out, yes, there are um, some situations where the vast deference will recanalize, and the vasectomy will reverse itself functionally. But that's not what happened here. What happened here, he goes, 
I don't know why he was making this comment. Everybody knows who his wife is sleeping with. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so anyway, it, it ultimately took um, a couple of years before they did a paternity test and realized not to the doctor's surprise, because he apparently, you know, again, it was a small town, so everybody kind of knew <laughs> happening there. And, uh, but it was two years of litigation. It was, it was stressful to him. And just when I thought I would never see that fact pattern again, it happened yet once again. This time it was a family practitioner who performed a vasectomy again in a small town. Same type of thing where, you know, it was just kind of a shock. So um, these, these vignettes are useful to help people understand that it's not just the, the big mistakes that you lose sleep over, the ones that you're aware of. It's the ones you were never thinking about in the first place that come back to bite you. And, and yeah, you may win, but it's going to be a stressful encounter. And it, it is helpful to have a guide to manage this process and hold your hand and let you know everything's going to be all right. It's not going to be a career ender. Well, Dr. Siegel, thanks so much for being the paradox. I mean, we can find out more you work at medicaljustice.com for your company. If you're a physician, certainly check out the, um, I guess you can get free consultations and things like the site. Where else should people follow your stuff or find you online? It's going to be um, pretty much our website, which would be medicaljustice.com, as well as the podcast Medical Liability Minute. We probably should change the name because we definitely speak for more than a minute. I was going to mention uh, that, but yeah, the most, <laughs> most for more than 10 minutes. There's a couple that are an hour. But you know, when you get into malpractice stuff, obviously, when you get into intricacies, it's you're not going to be able to do anything in a minute. Nothing. Nothing happens in a minute. As I say in the law, things move at glacial pace. I'm, uh, I'm sadly, personally, very aware of that. Uh, as well. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. Appreciate it. Let's do it again. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. 